welcome to For the Record, the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the music, politics, and culture of the 1970s. This is Amy, your host for this one-woman, one-mic show. In today's episode, we will examine how the distinctive sound of Philadelphia soul, as well as the message in the music, came to be a defining sound and perhaps helped a defining message of the 1970s. But first, thank you for returning to the loyal FTR 70 community, and thanks for hitting play to those who are listening for the first time. A special thank you to the patrons who kick in some cash to help pay the bills and spare you from hearing ads about, you know, for mattresses and underwear and things like that. You can be a patron for as little as $1 a month by going to FTR70.com, clicking on any episode, and following the Patreon link. If you're not able to do that, no worries. Simply spreading the word to someone who might like the show and leaving a nice review on your podcast app is also very much appreciated. By the way, to the listener who left the review saying that they also appreciated the lack of annoying banter between hosts that seems to plague some podcasts, I smiled at that one. I hear you. You know, there was a time when music was much more regional. You can hear it in the electric guitar of Bakersfield's brand of country and Chicago's brand of blues. You can hear it in the piano accordion of Louisiana's Cajun and Zydeco, the backbeat of Detroit's Motown, the distortions and that heavy bass of Seattle's grunge. And you can hear it in the strings of the sound of Philadelphia soul. The leader of Philly Soul was the black-owned record company, Philadelphia International Records. And even though it did not have the exclusive rights to call the sound its own, this label was the undisputed king of Philly Soul hits. It was a hit factory like Motown, and Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff were the Paul McCartney and John Lennon of the 1970s. What is this exactly? Well, it needs to be heard to be fully grasped, but this, from journalist Jim Farber in 2021, is a more than apt description. He wrote, It is a mixture of creamy strings, punching horns, snaking bass lines, and fulsome melodies, all combined to create something at once complex and light, a sonic souffle fired by soul. Or, We could simply go with Bobby Eli, producer and guitarist, who said that the Philadelphia sound is funk dressed in a tuxedo. The 70s does not have one single defining sound, no more than a stew has one ingredient or a comfortable quilt has one square of fabric. It has many elements that come together to make the whole that much better, and Philly Soul is part of that. Kenny Gamble said in a television interview for BET in 1997 that it was music that was for that generation. Each generation has its own music, he said, and what he and Leon Huff and their friend Tom Bell made was a sound of the 70s. And in the case of Gamble and Huff, they wrote lyrics for the 70s. To be clear now, The city of Philadelphia had a rich musical legacy before the mighty three, Gamble, Huff, and Bell. Uh, Marian Anderson, Billie Holiday, they were from Philadelphia. American Bandstand got its start in Philadelphia. Chubby Checker recorded the twist there. Bobby Rydell, Todd Rundgren, I could go on. In many ways, 
the Philly sound borrowed from and built on the sound that was coming from local groups. Some of those names, like Philly's Barbara Mason, who was 18 when she wrote and recorded Yes, I'm Ready in 1965, are not known well outside of Philadelphia, but they planted the seeds. And oh yes, by the way, KC of KC and the Sunshine Band did cover that song, Yes, I'm Ready, in a duet with Terry Desario in 1979. You were right. You've heard that before. More seeds for Philadelphia soul were sown in 1966 when Kenny Gamble and the Romeos, the trio feature featuring Gamble, Tom Bell, and Roland Chambers recorded Ain't It Baby Part 1 for the Arctic label. I also hear a bit of Motown in there too. Let's take a quick listen. This has the feel of a Marvin Gaye 60s single like Ain't That Peculiar or something like that. Of course, the element that's missing that makes Philly Soul Philly Soul are the strings. Still, we can see where Kenny Gamble and Tom Bell are headed with that one. Gamble met Leon Huff when they were both working as songwriters for 50 bucks a week in Philadelphia's Schubert Building. A chance meeting in an elevator was a step toward music history. The first time that Gamble went to Leon Huff's house, they wrote something like 10 songs. I've heard five, I've heard six, I've heard 10, whatever. They wrote several songs right out of the gate for a local group called the Sapphires. They clicked. Gamble wrote the lyrics. Huff wrote the music, sitting at the piano, even though neither could read music. They wrote Expressway to Your Heart for the Soul Survivors in 1966, and I'm Going to Make You Love Me, which was turned into a top 10 hit in 1968 by the Supremes and the Temptations. Just like that, Gamble and Huff became the hottest independent songwriters in the industry. They wanted their own record label, though, and Motown was their blueprint. Gamble's first plane ride ever was with Huff on a trip to Detroit to tour Motown. Eddie Holland, who was part of the legendary songwriting trio Holland Dozier Holland with his brother Brian and Lamont Dozier, showed them around. Uh, He even showed them how contracts worked. Still, you need contacts and you need money. Their break came when Clive Davis, the president of CBS Records, offered Gamble and Huff a deal that allows them to create Philadelphia International Records. Tom Bell was never part of PIR. He picked and chose who he wanted to work with and when. Now, Clive Davis offered this deal to Gamble and Huff because he did not like that CBS Records was not a major player in the so-called black music market. I need to take a minute here and talk about Clive Davis. It should surprise nobody that Clive Davis would think this way. As of this recording, Davis is on the verge of turning 90. He is the chief creative officer of Sony Music, and he listens to every song that makes the Billboard Hot 100. He said in an interview with Amy Wang of Rolling Stone in 2021, Believe me, I understand the stereotypical impression of anybody who's 90. You don't expect them to be working, active, to come up with any new ideas. I would like to be vital, participatory, 
to pave new stuff. So, no, not a surprise. The first smash hit for PIR was Backstabbers by the OJs in 1972, which I discussed a bit back in episode 22, Power to the People. The album Backstabbers sold 700 million copies in 1972, and it was the crossover success that CBS wanted. I said in that episode that the OJs were hardly new kids on the block. They had played the Chitlin circuit for years and were not happy with the direction their record label was taking them. Gamble and Huff liked the OJs, especially Eddie Levert's vocals, but the music industry was entirely underwhelmed by PIR signing this group, so approximately nobody paid any attention to this signing at all. Backstabbers is not really about a relationship gone bad. It's about how black men and women were treated in America. It was what Grill Marcus described as music of worry and confinement. Gamble and Huff would do more songs like that, even if the singers didn't really want them. They also seemed to have a knack for knowing which song to pair with which group or singer. Eddie Levert said in a 2021 interview with the New York Times, uh, as they were reflecting on the 50th anniversary of the founding of PIR, he said, it was almost like a workshop. They were able to take people who had the talent and then rehearse those songs until they became a part of you and really lived in you. The other act that PIR signed that set the tone for the label was Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, the group that was also far from green. In fact, as John A. Jackson reports in his book, A House on Fire, The Rise and Fall of Philadelphia's Soul, when Gamble and Huff signed the OJs and Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes in 1971, the two groups had over 30 years of combined experience, had been on 20 different record labels, and had zero, count them, zero top 40 hits. Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes had pretty much given up on recording careers and were playing the hotel lounge circuit. It seemed that they were, there were, I should say, two key moves in changing their fortunes. One was signing with PIR. The other was when Teddy Pendergrass stepped out from behind the drum kit and into the role of lead singer. Their first hit for PIR was If You Don't Know Me By Now, which was originally intended for the Ladies of LaBelle. It made it to number three on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one on the Billboard R&B chart in 1972. When Gamble and Huff wrote The Love I Lost, it was also intended to be a ballad, so it was kind of slow and languid, swaying. The session drummer Earl, Earl Young felt like it was dragging too much, so he sped things up with this four on the floor, playing the bass drum on every beat, and he hit that hi-hat cymbal, to drive the beat, and holy shit, Earl Young created the disco beat. He didn't know it at the time, but damn if he didn't do it. Listen, listen for that beat, and listen for the strings, which become the signature of Philadelphia Soul.
It's a good thing this isn't a video podcast because you would be witnessing some probably very bad chair dancing right now. Some of you know that I'm working on a book, The Seven Essentials of Disco, and uh, I'm not going to reveal the other six, but I just revealed the first one, The Love I Lost. The house band for PIR was MFSB. Regardless of what you may have heard, uh, that stands for Mother, Father, Sister, Brother, and it included legit members of the Philadelphia Orchestra who got to get a little funky as a change of pace from their classical music. They are definitely the special sauce to the Philly sound, but those vocals from Teddy, he is practically pleading with whoever it is to come back to him. One of the biggest criticisms of PIR and some of Tom Bell's work too is that the vocalists didn't matter. I completely disagree with that. If anything, They figure out how to use their vocalists as instruments, making more out of what they offered, which is what a producer is supposed to do in the first place. The Love I Lost was a hit, although not as big of a hit as If You Don't Know Me By Now. But more importantly, we can see disco from here. Gamble and Huff rejected disco later in the decade, but that does not change the fact that they were two of its architects. The Three Degrees, a trio of women from Philadelphia, were in a similar situation as Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes. They had such sweet harmonies that they were popular as a lounge act or a nightclub act, but they had no real hit records. Enter Gamble and Huff, who wrote When Will I See You Again for them. Sheila Ferguson said when she first heard Kenny Gamble played on the piano, she could not believe that he would insult them by giving them such a simple song. What the hell? Well, let's be clear that Philly Soul is a bit of a producer's genre, also foreshadowing disco, by the way. But what Gamble and Huff could do with the vocals from the Three Degrees took what seemed like a simple song and turned it into much more. Listen to some of the opening notes of When Will I See You Again? Sheila Ferguson owed Gamble and Huff an apology after that. And she did, in fact, apologize because that became a smash hit. 
Have you ever seen the movie The French Connection with Gene Hapman? Great movie. Uh, if you watch closely in a scene where there are women who are singing kind of like in this lounge act, I think they're wearing white dresses, they're singing uh, Everybody Gets to Go to the Moon. That is the three degrees. When Will I See You Again, quintessential Philly soul, made it to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 in December 1974. They also, by the way, the three degrees, provide the vocals on The Sound of Philadelphia, better known as the theme to the great dance show Soul Train. When Gamble and Huff presented another Philadelphia native, Billy Paul, with that slow jam, Me and Mrs. Jones, he had a similar reaction to that of Sheila Ferguson. Paul was a jazz singer and wondered why he was being given a pop song. This was a guy who sang with the great Dinah Washington when he was a child. He had jammed with the bird, Charlie Parker, and he was supposed to sing a pop song about a couple of people having an affair? Well, he agreed to do it, though, and the reason he agreed is he was having some marital problems, and, well, he had his own Mrs. Jones. He thought maybe he could relate, and, well, he sure sang as if he could. And as more evidence that the vocals in PIR songs really did matter, listen to how Billy Paul moans his way through this part of the song. We got a thing going on. We both know that it's wrong, but it's much too strong to let it go now. We gotta be. Careful that we don't build our hopes up too high. Cause she's got her own obligations. And so, and so do I. Me and Mrs. Mrs. Joe. have to dismiss me with this whole vocals don't matter for Philly Soul. Uh, they totally matter. Me and Mrs. Jones was number one for three weeks in 1972. As a follow-up, PIR released Am I Black Enough For You, which is funky, has a driving bass line and lyrics like this. Get in line. Stop marching in time. You better make up your mind. We're going to leave you behind. We're going to move on up three by three. We got to get rid of poverty I got to stay black, black enough for you. I got to stay black, black enough for you. As a follow-up to Me and Mrs. Jones, an international hit, this was a complete flop. Honestly, it just did not appeal to white people in 1972 or 1973. And Billy Paul blamed Gamble and Clive Davis 
for releasing a song that he said had, quote, limited appeal. He had trouble understanding why they would do this after he had become an international star on the strength of Mrs. Jones. He said he was told it was to specifically appeal to black people this time around, and years later he admitted it was popular with his African-American fans. But it is also true that he never had a hit that came anywhere close to me and Mrs. Jones after that. The music from PIR is on one hand ear candy. The word that comes up so often in articles and books and essays about Gamble and Huff is lush. And it is. Those string instruments just envelop you in this sound that's like waves. Your body just moves with it. But on the other hand, it's not just the empty calories of candy. There's something more underneath that sweetness. But Gamble and Huff made no pretenses that they didn't pay attention to what was happening in the world. They did. And they used what was happening around them in their lives and in the world, and they used it in their music to say something about it. Motown was able to draw a white audience for its music because the songs had these familiar pop elements. But it also maintained its African-American following because the songs were still R&B with, at times, a little tinge of gospel. Barry Gordy, who's Motown's founder and president, was also very resistant to political messages in Motown songs. He never wanted Marvin Gaye to release What's Going On. The fact is that songs did have to cross over that has become popular with a white audience to truly have mass appeal, and that might require walking a thin line politically. That there would even be two separate charts, R&B understood to be black music in the 70s, and pop generally understood to mean white, I think was actually part of the problem. Nevertheless, as PIR became an established hit factory, they released fewer songs like The Love I Lost or When Will I See You Again. It also cannot be dismissed how important it was that this sound that defined the first half of the 70s on the pop charts and the record label behind it was established by two African-American men. Philadelphia International Records became one of the five biggest black-owned businesses in America. And this was all happening as the 70s was trying to live with the civil rights legislation of the 60s. It took some balls not just to do it, but to stand up for it and to sustain it. It was very difficult for an independent record label to survive, let alone thrive. As the 70s began, half of the pop music market was controlled by five labels. It's only three today, uh, Universal, Sony, and Warner. In 1970, 81% of singles and 77% of albums lost money. So when the OJs released the album Ship Ahoy and the cover signaled to all who bought the record that the ship in question was a slave ship, it was a statement from PIR on just what this company wanted to accomplish. A concept album on slavery? Were they kidding? No, they were not. The sounds of whips and chains in the title track is proof of that. For the love of money on that album is often misunderstood as an ode to money. It's not. First of all, it's a reminder that slavery was not just a complete lack of humanity. It was a business. The two most valuable commodities in the United States prior to 1865 were land and enslaved people. 
For the Love of Money is a funkified warning about what people will do for money and a plea to not let it change you. For the love of money, people will lie. Lord, they will cheat. For the love of money, people don't care who they hurt or beat. For the love of money, a woman sells her precious body. For a small piece of paper, it carries a lot of weight. Call it lean, mean, mean, green. a game show called Name That Tune. A piano player would play one or two, three notes, and people would guess the song. And you'd hear like two notes, and they'd shout, Moon River, or something. And I'd be like, what was happening? Although I was a kid, so what did I know? I was watching a rerun not long ago. I still had no clue. However, I'm going to go ahead and just state publicly that if there was a Name That Bass Line, I would be pretty good at that. I mean, that bass line... And For the Love of Money from the OJs, that is just iconic. For the Love of Money was number nine on Billboard's Hot 100, number three on Billboard's R&B charts in 1974. It was also nominated for a Grammy for Best R&B Vocal Performance in 1975, but it lost to Tell Me Something Good by Rufus and Chaka Khan. I'll say I'm not mad about that at all. There were also uh, just too many TV shows and movies to count that have used For the Love of Money. Eddie Levert of the OJ said at first they did not want to do songs that had a message. They wanted something fun. They wanted to do something that uh, had some kick to it. Well, it has some kick to it. But Gamble and Huff were clear that they wanted to also make a social statement and that they believed you give part of your soul when you write songs. And that can be true in love songs, but it also can be true in other types of songs. Tom Bell did not do that. What I mean is he didn't write political songs, and that was intentional. He thought that issues like religion or politics were just too personal and that you were risking turning some people off. He had the opportunity to work with Aretha Franklin or Donny Hathaway when he joined Atlantic, but he figured that they did not need him. So he looked over the roster and he saw the spinners, who he was already familiar with. The Spinners, they'd been done wrong by Motown, who gave a lot more attention to The Temptations and to The Four Tops. In fact, the Spinners had to act as chauffeurs for them. Tom Bell made them into stars. 
I'll be around. Could it be on falling in love, one of a kind love affair, the games people play, rubber band man, then came you with Dionne Warwick. I mean, Tom Bell thought he could do better. Hell, I could do better uh, than make the spinners chauffeurs. But to try to convince the spinners to let him produce their next record, he said, if I do not get you a number one record, I will give each one of you $1,000. If I do get you a number one record, you owe me a custom Cadillac. He did not make them pay up when I'll Be Around went to number one, but that's okay. He didn't know how to drive anyway. Linda Creed, a white woman who came to love so-called black music when she saw Smokey Robinson and the Miracles on TV, met Tom Bell when she bombed an audition for him. She was singing Heat Wave, which was made famous by Martha and the Vandellas. She asked Bell for a second chance as a songwriter. She nailed an assignment he gave her, and that resulted in a hit for Dusty Springfield, I Want to Be a Free Girl. Creed and Bell became partners, and they had to brush off this misunderstanding that many people had that they were lovers, and they became a very formidable songwriting team. Bell was very willing to try new things musically, like he used uh, the sitar on Didn't I Blow Your Mind This Time by the Delphonics, and he used an oboe on Betcha by Golly Wow by the Stylistics. You just had to sing and play the songs his way, no improv. He was not going to write political songs, and he was not going to write songs that had any sort of religious bent to them. In fact, when Creed presented him the lyrics to You Make Me Feel Brand New, that part that goes, God bless you, he said, no, we can't do that. And she got really upset, and a few weeks later, her mom told him that she wrote those lyrics for him. And then he left, and he's like feeling like crap. So he, of course, he gave in, and it was recorded the way that she wrote it. Tom Bell also wrote... Uh, songs for all of his kids. But Rubber Band Man, that's the only one that was ever recorded. He and Linda Creed wrote a song about a guy that can really move. Rubber Band Man, how much of this stuff do he think we can stand? So much rhythm, grace, and debonair from one man, Lord. And then he had the nerve to wiggle his left toe to his knee. Got the feeling in his head, y'all. That sort of thing, right? But the original lyrics said, fat man. His son Mark was overweight, and Bell wanted a song that made him feel better. But Rubber Band worked better in the song than fat. The meaning of the song is the same.
saying to myself, don't sing, don't sing, don't sing. Rubber Band Man, recorded by The Spinners, written by Linda Creed and Tom Bell, with Tom on the keyboards. It went to number two on the Billboard Hot 100. I think it was uh, Kung Fu Fighting that kept it out of the number one spot. And has all the elements of Philly Soul with the added bonus of being a boost to Tom Bell's son. It's true that for writers of all types, minding your personal life and the world around you is often the first go-to. That's what Philly native Daryl Hall did with Sarah Smile. Now, yes, I know. Daryl Hall is white, as is John Oates, but I'm here to tell you that Hall and Oates have credibility among African-American musicians and fans. All you have to do is listen to Sarah Smile and She's Gone, and you can you can hear the Philly Soul DNA in those songs. Hall and Oates do have credibility with African-American musicians and fans. Daryl Hall, he was influenced by the same music as Kenny Gamble. Here, listen to this. that very sweet high tenor, that's Daryl Hall. Hall, H-O-H-L, soon to be H-A-L-L. That's Goodbye by the Temptones, written by Barry Glazer and Daryl Hall, recorded for the Arctic label in 1966. I mean, come on, that's that's soul right there. Daryl Hall and John Oates were also working as songwriters in the Schubert building at the same time that Gamble and Huff were. And yes, Gamble and Huff did offer them a contract with PIR, but they wanted to do something a little different and went to New York to forge a different path. But the roots are still there. Sarah's smile is about Hall's girlfriend, who he would be with for the next 30 years. And like Gamble and Huff said in a TV interview when they talked about how Uh, They told stories with their music. That's what Daryl Hall is doing with Sarah Smile. Sarah, smile, smile. 
Sarah smiled. It was number four on the Billboard Hot 100, and it was number 23 on the Hot Soul Singles in 1975. Tom Bell said in 1972, There is no such thing as a person being soulful because he's black. Look at Charlie Pride. He's a straight country singer. But the Beatles had it. Sinatra. Even Andy Williams sometimes. If a record's bought mainly by black people, we call that a black record. If everybody buys it, I call that a good record. Hall said in 1978 that at, that all Philadelphia's soul is what he called gray-eyed, meaning racially integrated, and it always has been. In addition to sounding great, I think another reason for the popularity of the song is the story. Gamble said in that TV interview on BET that that was part of their success. They wrote, wrote music that told stories that people could relate to, and Hall and Oates were doing that here, and they also did it with She's Gone, too. Now, anytime we take something resembling a chronological approach to music and culture in the 70s on this podcast, we are always reminded of the stranglehold that disco had on the Billboard charts as we move into the mid to late 70s. The desire for dance music dominates the pop charts. On the back of Message in the Music, the 1976 album by the OJs, Gamble wrote, understand while you dance. It's a worthy goal, but if you measure success and record sales as the 70s kind of steam into the disco era, there was less demand for message music. There was more demand for escapism. The empire began to crumble a bit for Gamble and Huff when they were hit with a payola scandal in 1975. Now, paying DJs to play records was nothing new under the sun, and the fact that they were being charged made some people believe that this was the evidence that they had not been involved in payola. They had not paid off the right people. In the end, Gamble had a slap on the wrist fine assessed and Huff didn't. There were concerns, though, in their inner circle that Kenny Gamble, who had also recently converted to Islam, was too focused on viewing everything that PIR did through the black lens. Some writers became more discontent, uh, more unhappy with the way they were used, and one of the best examples of this was Gene McFadden and John Whitehead, who wrote Backstabbers with Leon Huff. Uh, Kenny Gamble was the producer on that one. They wrote several other songs, but wanted to sing too. They were told that they could best serve PIR by writing, until finally uh, Kenny Gamble told them that they could make their own record. They released Ain't No Stoppin' Us Now in 1979, and the title track is the last big hit for PIR in the 70s, and it's also one of the last great dance records of the 70s too. Ain't No Stoppin' Us Now was a message song, but not in the way Kenny Gamble thought it was. It was a message to Kenny Gamble, who McFadden and Whitehead felt had been holding them back and not paying them their fair share. Whitehead said, If anything, the song was a declaration of our independence from Gamble. The things that were keeping us down in the song were Gamble's ideas about how we could best serve his company. We didn't mean the song to say, Get off your butts, black people. 
We tried to put a message in our music, but it was a universal message. We write about what happens in our own lives. These are not ideas that are just for black people. Whitehead, number one, Billboard R&B chart, number 13, Billboard Hot 100 in 1979. Gamble and Huff presented this song as a message to the black community, which McFadden and Whitehead thought was part of the problem with the company at that point. It had grown to view from their perspective and present so much from a political point of view, which made them less popular with the white audience. Going for, quote, black unity through music, meant fewer record sales. But to listen to Gamble and Huff today, 50 years later, they still mean what they said then. They wanted to make something more than music that sounded good. Kenny Gamble said 40 years after Love Train's release that there there was still conflict in some of the countries mentioned. Tell all the folks in Russia and China too, don't you know that it's time to get on board? He said, and I quote, I think it's even more relevant today than it was then. Those songs turned out to be anthems. We were talking about our feelings, but evidently they were feelings of millions of people all over the world. He remains convinced that the message in the music is what matters the most, and they created music that made people feel better and see better. Mark Neal, professor of African American Studies at Duke, said of Gamble and Huff, Quote, they found a way to marry the Motown machine with the Stax grit. So you get this sound on one level that is glossy and smooth, but at the same time, it kind of burns the way we think about Stax. Kenny Gamble said in 2021 to the New York Times, when you think of our music, it was 360 degrees of knowledge that we gave. 
a lot of great love songs, which is important in life, but also a lot of songs about, about building our community, building people. It don't mean anything if you don't leave something for the next generation. That is all for this episode of For the Record, the 70s. You can follow the show on Instagram at 70s Podcast. You can also find all of my sources on FTR70.com. If you like what you hear, please consider being a patron or, hey, just tell somebody to help others find the show. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.